Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 126 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Guys, this is crazy. I am looking at Toby right now. Toby is in the room with us. Yeah, and she doesn't even mean the the picture of me that they usually hang on the wall when they record. I'm actually here in the stew. In the studio. Mm-hmm. To be clear, there's still the picture of me there with the candle lit, the black flame candle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To make my presence known. Yeah, yeah. We have mm-hmm. an empty chair with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Toby, how does it feel to be in the, our presence? In the stew? You could say in the stew. In the stew. The book stew. <laughs> in the stew. Oh, it feels great to be in the stew. The stew is so like warm and it's a, it's a garage, people. <laughs> <laughs> It's a garage with a lot of gray curtains, but it's really nice to be with you guys. It's fun to be back. Nice, nice to see you guys. Yeah. Andrew, I hear that you went on a spooky trip. What? I did. I mean, it's no longer spooky season. We can't be afraid again until next October. Yep. Everything is um, not scary until then, mm-hmm. as we all know. Um, except for the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, they're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I went to New Orleans and it just, it was it was a work trip. It wasn't anything like vacation-y, but I happened to be able to stay sort of close to the French Quarter, but not like, you know, party, party central. Mm-hmm. But I, on Halloween night, arrived and um, had already eaten dinner, just wanted to sort of walk around a little bit. And listeners, Pedro. Let me tell you that in that like 30 minute walk I did just sort of around the French Quarter of New Orleans, this is not an exaggeration. I believe I walked past 26 ghost tours. Wow. And that might be an underestimate. Like I think there was maybe even upwards of 30. Just every corner I turned was just more and more ghost tours. So if ghost tours are your thing, I didn't go on it, so I can't recommend a specific one, but you at least have a variety to choose from if you visit the great city of New Orleans. But Andrew, there hasn't been a ghost tour in New Orleans in 30 30- <laughs> Years. Oh no. Have you guys ever been to a ghost? I did um, the Jack the Ripper tour in London. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to one, which is strange because it seems like it'd be my jam. It was pretty fun. We did the Winchester Mystery House tour, which is usually a ghost tour. But mm-hmm. that's like inside the building. Like going on the streets is a whole yeah, different. You got shut down, Dylan. Wow. <laughs> Give it 10 minutes and you can try again. Didn't think I'd go on a ghost gatekeeping tour. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've been to the Winchester Mystery House, which from what I understand, depending on your tour guide, really depends. Didn't you all get one who was like, no, this is just about architecture? Yeah. I got one who was there ready to be spooky. <laughs> well, there were some mentions, but it was like an afterthought, which was disappointing. Hmm. I did go on one in Seattle, which was cool. And then Jillian, I, I mean, I wish we had Jillian on the podcast list, but she has a very funny story where a ghost tour person dressed up as Benjamin Franklin uh, took them on a tour of ghosts in upstate New York, um, but kept saying, take pictures with the flash on. If you see a ball of light in the window, that means that's a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> because of which the flash. just seems wow. like maybe there's another reason there's a ball of light there. <laughs> Nice try, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, and, and actually, he insisted on being called Benjamin Franklin. He wasn't just in costume. <laughs> and also, he didn't work there. That's perfect. I love it. Speaking of spooky season, I, I know we joke about this every time, but I had started two spooky books before Halloween. and We can't s- stop talking about spooky season. It's going to be January 28th. and be like, so spooky so season. So spooky. Well, I started this, you know, Pet Cemetery, as recommended by Tobin. Mm-hmm. And I started um, this book called Kill Creek, which sounded really good. It was a group of, like, famous horror writers getting... They have to spend Halloween night in a haunted house. So it's like, sounds fun. Sounds pretty good. But, like, numbers. with both ones... I I got like two chapters in and then it became November. And I kid you not, I have no interest anymore. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know what's happening. You ain't going to be spooked. You can't be spooked. Oh, and actually, I should add to my story, Bailey. Yeah, you can't be spooked anymore. That's fine. I did spend that walk around New Orleans reading the audiobook of Pet Cemetery, which was a Ooh. fun experience in the spooky time. Ooh. Have you, did you finish and the book? I agree book? with Toby. It's very good. Oh, yeah. I mean, Child's Play. Yes, I did. Excellent. Emily reached out to say that she agrees with Toby that Pet Cemetery's best. And she said, controversially, she thinks Gerald's Game is second best. Have yeah. you read Gerald's Game? I have. The, the Netflix movie is, is pretty close. Okay. It's, it, it's one of the ones where it's a short story, so it's very adaptable to movie because there's not too much in there. It's a very good one. I, I don't know if I'd put it second because I do like the really scary ones like The Shining and It. Yeah. But it is it, it is similar to Pet Cemetery in that it's a very self-contained and it has a good ending and all that. So, gotcha. Yeah. Props, Emily. 
So because of all of this not getting through my spooky books, I have a problem, which is we are seven weeks till the end of the year. I have to read 19 more books to meet Ooh. my goal. So that's like two, two to three a week. Um, oh, boy. Uh, Goodreads says I'm eight books behind. Oh, boy. So all this to say is I got some shame in an attempt to get through some more books. <laughs> so to get through more books when you had books available, you <laughs> bought more books. Okay. I'm accepting your premise, but I'm pointing out the other way to phrase it. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I, with Toby in town, we went to our favorite. Don't you drag me. Don't, yeah, don't you do this. Toby said, we have to go to the bookstore. And I said, I don't want to. I don't like to buy books. Yeah, she was hitting me in the face. I said, absolutely not. And yeah. you said, you have to. Mm-hmm. And then when he got there, you said, you have to buy three books. Yeah, she kept hitting me. She had a fish in her hand. She was slapping me with a fish. And the weird thing is you didn't buy any books. (laughs) (laughs) I like going to bookstores and just browsing. There was a display for the fifth volume of Lore Olympus. And I didn't, I realized I hadn't read volume four. And those are really fun graphic novels about Persephone and Hades. And they're quick. And so I was like, I have to get both. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost done with one of them. So there you go. And then I got another book, but I'm not going to spoil what it is because that would spoil the podcast. What? I've forgotten what it is. So yeah, did anybody else get any shame? <laughs> no, I think you just told the Pedros that I didn't get any shame. I was with you and I didn't get it. I'm not with you all the time, though. You might have other shame. Yes, you are. <laughs> Up here. Dun, dun, dun. No, no shame for me. Andrew? No, I ain't about that shame life. <laughs> I did not. I've been on the road for work pretty constantly since our last record, which sometimes is good for buying books. There were wonderful bookstores in New Orleans, but I just did not have room to add anything mm. to my light carry-on slash suitcase that was not carried on ultimately because it was too big. I feel that where it's like part of the reason I didn't buy any books yesterday when we went to Chevalier's is that I didn't find anything that really called to me. But also it's like, yeah, my, my backpack is full. I'm living that no carry-on life. I have my pickleball paddle with me. That's all the room I have, baby. Yeah, you do need that. That is necessary. Yeah. (laughs) I can't read that, though. It's sad. Toby and Dylan went pickleballing today. Is that what you say? Pickleballing? Yeah, we totally say that. We pickled the ball. We pickled those balls. Yeah, it was great. Went to Santa Monica, played pickleball. It was Dylan's first experience. Yeah, and they are not joking around over there. Yeah, Dylan discovered that it may sound stupid, but (laughs) it makes you feel stupid. It is a very hierarchical higher... It's a a game with a hierarchy. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Yeah, there's levels. You have to get in at the right level. If you lose, do you get sent to the pickle jar? Yep, that's what they call it. That's what they should call it. No, you get murdered. (laughs) (laughs) They beat you to death with their pickleball paddles. They beat you to death with pickleball paddles. It takes a long time because they're very (laughs) soft. It's true. Nice. But Toby was very nice, and it was funny because he was playing with child's gloves with me, and then eventually he just left me at the kitty corner so he can go and be- play some actual people. Yeah. With the real pickles. Mm-hmm. Your terminology is spot on. It's like you're dialed in. Nice. All right. Well, speaking of pickleball, Andrew, did you read a book about <laughs> apartheid? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I did read a book about South Africa and the implications of, uh, you know, institutionalized racism. Okay. Which is not at all like pickleball. So, yes, I read a book called Cry, the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. Wah. 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 Yep. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Take me home, beloved country roads. Um, <laughs> have any of you read this book? This is a book I think a lot of people were assigned in classes. No, this is a book where I know the title, but I actually don't think I knew till recently what it was about. But it was just one of those ones that's like personal shame. You should know what this is and you don't. Mm-hmm. Just pretend you know what it is when people are talking about it. That's exactly my experience with this book. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Powerful, powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, Dylan, no? Are you a loser too? I was going to say, I can say no unless someone's asking me, and then I'll say, oh, yeah, I think I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, remind it rings, me. It rings a bell, yeah. Mm, yeah. Maybe I read it so long ago. The one about the uh, the guy. And the country. Does that answer your question, Andrew? <laughs> well, I don't think we need to do the review. I think we, 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 we covered it. <laughs> No, so it's actually the uh, not to step on anybody's research. I just happen to know that it's the 75th anniversary of this book coming out. Oh. That's why we chose it. <laughs> I just happened to look up when it came out for reasons that will come out in my review. So I've had this book for a long time. I don't even remember where I got it. I think, again, I, I recognized it at maybe like a book fair because it's a very old copy that I'm certainly not the first owner of. So who knows? But I'm glad it was picked for me and, and now I get to read it for a podcast, which was always what my probably 17-year-old self thought would happen when I bought this book. <laughs> you knew about podcasts even then. Even then. So here's a little um, paragraph introing it. It is not a logline, nor will I ever do a logline again. Great. 
In Cry, the Beloved Country, Alan Patton tells the story of Reverend Stephen Kumalo, a rural parson who travels to Johannesburg in search of his lost family members. Overwhelmed by the new place and the weight of his family circumstances, he struggles to comprehend how his faith and the world can exist in harmony. Ultimately, the book is a condemnation of apartheid, a meditation on connection across racial, fiscal, and moral lines, and a demand to remember the shared humanity of others. Wow. Wasn't a log line, but it's pretty good. I ain't doing that no more. I'm a rebel. I'm riding a motorcycle through this podcast. Um, So uh, to give you a little more sort of plot context, and I'm not going to spoil anything once I get to my elves and orcs, but I think it's really hard to sort of give you context about this book without a light sort of major spoiler, but it happens so early in the book that I kind of have to say it. If that's something that's really important for you, advance 30 seconds on your thing and you'll probably get the same experience. Okay. (laughs) So Reverend Stephen Kamalo uh, lives in this very small town, very rural, undergoing a lot of hard times. It's like there's drought, things aren't going well. A lot of people leave this town to go to Johannesburg for more opportunity. He gets a letter that his sister is in trouble and his son has also gone to Johannesburg previously. So he goes on the train from his small town to Johannesburg and is all of a sudden overwhelmed in the city and finds out eventually, while he finds his sister, he doesn't find his son before it comes out that his son has been arrested for murdering a white man. Hmm. End of spoilers. That's sort of the broad stroke that happens. What happens after that all comes out of that instance. So basically, it starts as this sort of fish out of water story where this person who's like barely been on a train before goes into this huge city where all of the like rampant effects of race and class and economic differences that have happened in his country like turn to 11 and he's just super overwhelmed and the first half of the book is him like looking for people because also people in his hometown are like can you check in on my uh sister can you check in on my nephew Mm. trying to find these people and trying to like recreate his family and then the second half of the book is about sort of the consequences of not being able to do that or sort of succeeding in a different way in doing that Mm. and that's sort of the broad plot of the book he goes to the city he returns home changed that's all you really need to know Mm, hero's Mm. I know it's just the genre type, but it's funny because I always think of fish out of water as like a fish out of water comedy. <laughs> but in this case, it's like a fish out of water. It's like, oh, he's in a new world. It's like, And also he's suffocating slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say the term maybe needs an edit for yeah. when we <laughs> use it comedically. Not, hadn't thought about that before. Um, but yeah. So um, I'm going to go into some orcs and elves. Are you all ready to go on this train of orc town? Yes. Train to orc and elf town. I'm ready. Next stop, Orkton. <laughs> First of all, let's start with elves here. It was way different than I expected. I don't entirely know what I expected, but it's 75 years old. It's ultimately like sort of a moral novel. At least that was my Mm -hmm. understanding. But it felt super modern. Mm. And especially in certain sections, it like riffs with structure and perspective. It plays with sort of emphatic repetition. It is like goes between Stephen Kumalo's perspective and like anyone who he wants to go to. And ultimately Mm. what that came to is it didn't feel like, you know, a 75 year old book. It felt sort of kind of geared to a modern audience. And so that was just a really fun surprise because, you know, when a book, Pejos won't necessarily have had this experience unless they like do a fantasy to read list at their own house. <laughs> but sometimes you get a, a like an old classic chosen. and you're just like, I know that this is an important book, but it's going to be a slog. And that mm-hmm. was what I was prepared for in this book, but I was pleasantly surprised. So you're saying Pejos won't remember. Well, maybe. I, I bet some Pejos out there like literally choosing for themselves now, which is yeah. kind of cool. I know what you mean, though. You ever like watch a really old classic movie and you expect it to be kind of like intellectual, oh, yeah, but yeah. then you're like, this that's is really good. Yeah. Like, no wonder it's, you know, still watched today. Yeah. And I also feel like I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think these days the title does it no favors. Like, it just sounds like such a rough time. Cry, the beloved bleak. country. Yeah. Like, oh boy. I'm sure it's great. But yeah, that title just makes me want to go to sleep. Doesn't make you want to read the beloved book? Okay, fine. <laughs> they really said today they just call it the beloved country's wife. Tuesdays with the beloved the girl country. on the beloved country. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, so that, that's my first elf. Second is sort of a generic just call out for it having really great writing. Patton like really does mix things well. He has a, a great way of talking directly to the reader and hitting the points that he wants to make hard, but well. And he also throws in a lot of dialogue, which isn't like, I think meant to be like literal dialogue necessarily, but it like conveys what's going on. Um, I'll talk more about that in my in my next elf. But um, I want to give you a couple of examples of the work and uh, see what you think. Sweet. First one is just sort of like a simple sort of reflective paragraph. You'll notice the title of the book appears in it, which happens several times in the book. Cry the Beloved Country is sort of not quite a riff, but it happens a few times. 
And this is a paragraph on page 80 of my copy. Cry, the beloved country, for the unborn child that is the inheritor of our fear. Let him not love the earth too deeply. Let him not laugh too gladly when the water runs through his fingers, nor stand too silent when the setting sun makes red the veld with fire. Let him not be too moved when the birds of his land are singing, nor give too much of his heart to a mountain or valley, for fear will rob him of all of it if he gives too much. Damn. Sounds pretty poetic. Yeah. Yeah, it, but the thing is, it riffs between that and just like straightforward like scenelets, which is kind of cool. I don't know if you guys caught that, but I think I heard the book title in there. I think I know where he got it from. Oh, wow. literally introduced that when I was doing the quote. <laughs> and so I thought that was like a really powerful thing and of like a very complicated thing, which is just like the life that these children, and this was specifically in reference to the plight of black people in South Africa at the time. Like there's no point in like loving the earth because it's set against them, mm. which I thought was a, a powerful sort of message. Hmm. And then I also wanted to call out what is more of like sort of a modern conceit, at least to my reading thing, which is on page 52 of my book, in which um, he sort of does a, a writing technique to sort of really convey subtext. And you'll see how that happens in here. And you'll see that this doesn't necessarily sound like it was written as long ago as it was, but we'll see. So this is on 52. And I think it's a great example of like subtext. I'm going to say quote when there actually are spoken words, because the point of this is some stuff's unspoken. Okay. All roads lead to Johannesburg. If you are white, or if you are black, they lead to Johannesburg. If the crops fail, there's work in Johannesburg. If there are taxes to be paid, there's work in Johannesburg. If the farm is too small to be divided further, some must go to Johannesburg. If there is a child to be born that must be delivered in secret, it can be delivered in Johannesburg. The black people go to Alexandria or Sophia Town or Orlando and they hire rooms or buy a share of a house. Quote, have you a room that you could let? Quote, no, I have no room. Quote, have you a room that you could let? Quote, it is let already. Quote, have you a room that you could let? No, quote. Yes, I have a room that I could let, but I do not want to let it. I have only two rooms, and there are six of us already, and the boys and girls are growing up. But school books cost money, and my husband is ailing, and when he is well, there's only 35 shillings a week. And six shillings of that is for rent, and three shillings for traveling, and a shilling that we may be buried decently, and a shilling for the books, and three shillings is for clothes, and that is little enough. Um, so I thought that that was like a kind of cool way of conveying subtext that was kind of inventive, and I was surprised yeah. to see it in this book. Yeah, I haven't heard anything like that before. That's cool. Yeah, it feels very, I like it when it feels so confident and fluid and artistic like that. I don't know. Yeah. Sounds like a, a good reading experience. Also, I appreciate that they budgeted for books. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. And one shilling for shame and then two <laughs> more shillings for shame. <laughs> then uh, we sell the house for shame. <laughs> yeah. And so the last sort of elf I want to throw in is it's really well paced. There were chapters with heavy dialogue and then they interspersed it with those sort of more theoretical like interior chapters. And I know I've already said this, but like it's an old book, but it felt like paced for a modern reader. Nice. So those are elves. Orcs. I don't have a lot of orcs about this book. My, If I had to sort of say it concisely, at times it does get a little diatribe-y, mm. but I was willing to forgive that because I think this was meant to be sort of like an expose of apartheid to someone who might not be familiar. So like some exposition of it was sort of necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even when it happens, it's not awful, but there's just some times where like a character reads a letter, which sort of like tells you more about like how this works. But, you know, I was, it was a light orc on that. And another sort of light orc is that Patton is clearly like a man of very deep faith. Mm. And it isn't a con. That's not, I don't mean like that's a bad thing about a person. It just influences the text in a way that some readers might bristle at if it's something that people have a strong reaction to. Mm -hmm. And that sort of ties into my last little orclet, which is that there is just like this hint of a white savior narrative. Though, even as I say that, I think that Patton throws in enough complication that it sort of balances out. So yeah, those are three, but three very small little goblins that basically amount to like sort of one orc, which is that, you know, maybe you didn't need some of the like more structural stuff versus just like telling the story. Three little orcs standing on each other's shoulders under a coat that then looks just like one normal orc. Can I go into this R-rated movie? <laughs> I'll have one ticket for a normal rated orc, please. I think my big orc would be apartheid. <laughs> Yeah, Don't I think that that's implied. <laughs> so yeah, that's my review of this book. I was very pleasantly surprised by it. I think it probably lives at more of a four and a half because of those orclets, but because I think a lot of that can be explained based on sort of when it was written, I'm going to go five stars for it. And I'm going to keep it on my baby. shelf. Amazing. Nice. I did not expect that. I thought, like, as you said, that you would like it fine. I didn't expect it to be a five star, so that's very cool. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tobin, do you have any facts on Mr. Patton? Yep. Cool. 
Would you like to share them with us? There's like a very combative energy when we're in the same room. It's, it's very intense. All right. Alan Stewart Patton was born on the 11th of January, 1903, and he died, surprise, spoiler, on the 12th of April, 1988. You mean he's not 120 years old? What? So I said surprise, spoiler. Um... <laughs> He was a South African writer and anti-apartheid activist. His works include the novels Cry the Beloved Country, Heard of It, and Too Late the Fallarope, and the narrative poem The Wasteland, among others. Wait, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland? Everybody has it's a, a different poem one. called There's The Wasteland. There's more than one wasteland. Okay, everybody just came out me with a lot yeah, of energy. That was a, lot of, <laughs> a legitimate question. <laughs> it was a different wasteland. Okay. So he was born in a very difficult town to say. I will give it a shot. Pieter Maritzburg. Yeah, I think that's about right. And uh, in the colony of Natal, and the son of a civil servant who was of Christadelphian belief. He attended the Maritzburg College. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree at the University of Natal in his hometown, and then he got a diploma in education. After he graduated, he worked as a teacher, first at the Ixopo High School and subsequently at the Maritzburg College. While he was at Ixtopo, he met Dori Frances Lusted. They married in 1928 and remained together until her death from emphysema in 1967. Uh, they had two sons, Jonathan and David, and then in 1969, Patton married again, Anne Hopkins, and that marriage lasted until Patton's death. Sounds like a very lovely life. As Andrew mentioned, um, he was a notoriously intense Christian. I don't say that in a bad way. That sounds bad. But he just very strong faith, and it was a very much a part of his personality. It informed his novels. It informed how he lived his life. Um, and that was just kind of one thing he was known for, being real Christian. Mm. For a while, he served as the principal of the Diepkloof Reformatory for Young Native African Offenders from 1935 to 1949. That sounds really, that sounds yeah. like a racist building. He introduced a controversial progressive reform. And basically, these were policies on open dormitories, work permits, and home visitation for the prisoners. The men were initially housed in closed dormitories before he made these changes. Once they had proven themselves trustworthy, they would be transferred into open dormitories within the compound. And then um, if they kind of were on their best behavior, they, they could be permitted to work outside the compound. So it's more of a reformatory than oh. just, you know, lock up and throw away the key. He's not like those other wardens. He's a cool warden. <laughs> yeah. Um, in some cases, he even permitted uh, some of the residents to reside outside of the compound under the supervision of a care family. And it said that fewer than 5% of the 10,000 men who were given home leave during Patton's years ever broke the trust by failing to return. So it was a successful program. That's really interesting. A character that basically does that job is a sort of major character in the middle to second half of the book. Mm. So he sort of maybe based it a little bit on something that happened there. Who knows? But like that's, it, I had no idea that that was in any way possibly autobiographical. Interesting. Yeah. Seems like a really interesting part of his life. He volunteered for military service with the British Commonwealth forces during World War II, but was refused by the South African authorities. After the war, he took a journey at his own expense to tour correctional facilities across the world. He toured Scandinavia, Britain, continental Europe, Canada, and the United States. During his time in Norway, he started work on his seminal novel, Cry the Beloved Country, which he completed over the course of his journey, finishing it on Christmas Eve in San Francisco in 1946. Oh, nice. Just in time to really go all out on Christmas. Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas me, he said, and then typed the end. <laughs> he published numerous books throughout the 1950s, and they were incredibly popular, sold millions of copies, enough to actually make him quite wealthy from just their sales alone. On the 11th of January, 2018, a Google Doodle honored the author on what would have been his 115th birthday. The ultimate prize. You only get it really after you die, but it is... Yeah. A big one. It's the biggest one. It is one. a friggin' big one. Yeah, Nobel Prize, then Google Doodle, I believe is how it goes. Um, he retired eventually to Bothus Hill, where he resided until his death, and he is honored at the Hall of Freedom in the Liberal International Organization. That sounds like a not racist building. <laughs> and now I have a few uncommon facts from Oprah.com. Oh, thanks, mm -hmm. Oprah. An uncommon fact about him is that he looked sometimes rather, quote, seedy. What? Mm -hmm. Is that a fact? <laughs> That's a fact. Okay. It's right here. All right. Sometimes he looked like crap. <laughs> <laughs> and here is the quote from the article. One of Patton's drinking companions told the story of getting up late after one of those sessions and making his way with Patton down to the river to wash. As they climbed through a fence, Patton, who was looking pretty hungover after all the whiskey of the night before, said to his companion, you know, I think I'm like St. Francis of Assisi, because when I speak to the birds, they come and answer me. No, said his companion. I don't think that's the reason. I think it's because you're looking so seedy this morning. So Ooh. he just wanted to make sure that that burn got on the record. Yeah, so, yeah. so one time his friend roasted him and now it's on Oprah.com. <laughs> 
There's one more fun fact about how well his books sold. Um, the first edition of Cry of the Beloved Country sold out on the day of its publication. Wow. What? And it was hastily reprinted. Uh, by April 1948, just three months after its first appearance, the book was in its sixth printing, and a demand showed no sign of slackening. The book eventually sold more than 15 million copies between publication in 1948 and Patton's death in 1988. So, Wow. That's like everybody right now is going crazy over the new book in the Iron Flame <laughs> universe. Yes, link these two, and, please. Do it. And it, they sold out like within hours. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, 2023. But uh, in 1948, it's the like equivalent a... <laughs> is the country. It's just funny. Oh, boy. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. Like the idea that this is like the hot, like people are lining up at borders because the new, yeah. the new patent is dropping. Hear me out. Harry Potter and the Beloved Country. <laughs> Midnight release. <laughs> Great. Those are the facts. Well, thank you for those facts, Toby. That was great. And thank you for your review, Andrew. That is Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. Five stars. Five stars. Well, I have a guess about things. I need to do some experiments. I have a hypothesis that says that Bailey read a book for this podcast. Is it true? Uh, I have to check my notes, but yes, it is true. I did read a book. And this is, again, well, I'll just say I read The Love Hypothesis by <laughs> Allie Hazelwood. And again, you know, prime to read list podcast. <laughs> Cry the Blue Country <laughs> and The Love Hypothesis. I think this is great. It's, the, it's the, the, the range of books that you can enjoy. There you go. I assume none of you have read the book. Andrew. Hurtful. I have not read the book, but depending on uh, how well you review it, maybe I'll read it. Who knows? I got to catch up on my goals, too. That (laughs) hypothesis would be correct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, so you might know this book because it's really popular on Bookstagram, on Book Talk. It is a romance novel. It follows a PhD candidate student named Olive. Mm. And the inciting incident is that she has a best friend named Anne. And one night, Anne, well, Anne wants to date somebody that Olive went on a date with, even though Olive's not interested. Anne's like, I can't do that to you. So Olive's like, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to make it so, you know, Anne won't worry. And so I'm going to say I'm going on a date with someone. But then Anne walks in because she's working at the lab late one night, Olive, because she's a PhD. Wait, and then they do the monster mash? Yes. She's a PhD working in what? Science, chemistry, biology, biology. (laughs) (laughs) Science. And um, Anne sees her and she's like, oh, shoot, I'm supposed to be on a date right now. So she just turns and kisses somebody. The first person she sees next to her. Oh, my gosh. Um, And then she's like yeah i'm dating this person and so then it becomes a fake dating scenario are you familiar with the fake dating trope i am familiar with the fake dating trope okay Mm -hmm. i am not and i would like 10 to 20 examples in detail right now um how to lose a guy in 10 days to all the boys i loved before is how to lose a guy drive me crazy Um, 10 things I hate about you. Um, I was making a joke. Well, I could keep going. (laughs) Wait, I was a bet? (laughs) (laughs) She's all that. Um, Okay, so yeah, the idea that you're fake dating to make it seem like... To prove a point. To prove a point or to... Follow up on a promise. And somehow... To dunk on your dad. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, the first rule is don't fall in love. And Mm -hmm. Uh probably going to fall in love. Uh So um, as another introduction, I'm going to read just the second from the book that is this inciting incident this is after when the kiss. they kissing it's right after the kiss can you read the part where they kiss and make smoochy sounds Ooh, uh, gross gross <laughs> dylan's gonna kiss the back of his hand while they're, <laughs> they're straight up a couple kissing on the cover i know oh i should say also that the person that she happens to kiss his name is adam and he is a professor and he's known to be like a jerk professor like really difficult oh. and like shooting down people's theses and this sort of thing but not her professor right because that's what they'd be bad no not her professor okay. which is important Okay. It's okay. It's fine. Totally fine. She was just going to pretend nothing had happened, nodded him politely, and tiptoe her way out of here. Yes, solid plan. Did you Did you just kiss me? He sounded puzzled and maybe a little out of breath. His lips were full and plump and, God, kissed. There was simply no way Olive could get away with denying what she had just done. Still, it was worth a try. Nope. Surprisingly, it seemed to work. Uh, okay then. Carlson nodded and turned around, looking vaguely disoriented. He took a couple of steps down the hallway, reached the water fountain, maybe where he'd been headed in the first place. Olive was starting to believe she might be actually off the hook when he halted and turned back with a skeptical expression. Are you sure? Damn it. I... She buried her face in her hands. It's not the way it looks. Okay. I... He repeated slowly. His voice was deep and low and sounded like he was on his way to getting mad. Like, maybe he was already mad. What's going on here? There was simply no way to explain this. Any normal person would have found Olive's situation odd, but Adam Carlson, who obviously considered empathy a bug and not a feature of humanity, could never understand. She let her hands fall to her sides and took a deep breath. I, listen, I don't mean to be rude, but this is really none of your business. He stared at her for a moment and nodded. (laughs) Yes, of course. So, 
fun. This is our beginning. Yes. And I'm just going to give you a, the spoiler is that I love this book. I oh. I could not put it down. <laughs> so, okay. It's a romance novel. It has It's filled with tropes. It's predictable from the first page to the point where it's almost like dramatic irony. Like you are so far ahead of the characters that you're just excited for the characters to catch up. To do up. the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the same way that guys like, not guys, this is stereotypical, but people what like you act, gonna say? action movies because you know how it's going to go. Wow. wow. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you over the roar of my monster truck movie that I'm watching <laughs> in the background here. I enjoy romance because you know what's going to happen and you know it's going to be a happy ending. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just about going along How the ride. How they get there, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't expect to, but I was drawn in immediately and I literally couldn't put it down. I read it in one sitting, staying up late into the night. I, mm -hmm. I was next to Dylan in bed with a little flashlight and I was up until 3 a.m. finishing it. <laughs> Go to bed. No, they're going to prove the love hypothesis. No, it, I would periodically turn to Dylan and be like, Dylan, she's pretending she doesn't like him. And he, he's like, oh, gross, ew. Like, <laughs> playing the, anyway, so I loved it. Some things that are different from other romance novels, like I said, there are tropes, but she acknowledges the tropes. Like she's going to, she said, like, there's a point where they have to get a hotel. She's like, there's going to be one bed. And he's <laughs> like, no, there's going to be two. She's like, there's going to be one bed. You clearly have, mm -hmm. are not familiar. Another thing that I liked, it's very modern in terms of like, consent and things like in the middle of you know a spicy chapter she's like i already said yes he's like yes but you can change your mind at any point mm -hmm. like that's refreshing um spoiler alert for you know what might happen the writing was fun i was interested in the characters the characters were clearly flawed and clearly you're way far ahead of them and sometimes they make stupid decisions but i was just charmed by them and i straight up like felt little butterflies i was like oh. um i did have a few orcs Oh. My orcs were as follows. Number one, I didn't like their age difference. I think that there was power issues. I believe that she is 26 and he is 34. And also he's a professor and she's a student. Uh, yeah, that's that, very That valid. makes more difference to me. It than... just, it, like when I was 34, I did not want to date a 26 year old. Yeah. I was also married, but you know, you get the <laughs> Well, <point>. yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I did, I... It just felt a little icky to me. And then the other thing was, I'm just, I'm just not that into like, so there were a fair amount of scenes that would be the equivalent of, and she's all that, you know, when she takes off her glasses and they're like, oh my God, you're so pretty. Oh, mm -hmm. there's a ponytail. What's she trying to pull? And the equivalent would be like, he takes off his lab coat and his shirt is tight and she's like, oh my God, muscles. <laughs> so the, there's a lot of talk about his like six pack abs, et cetera. Mm. And I'm just, it's just, uh, whatever. Yeah, doesn't do it for doesn't you. Doesn't do it for me. But those two orcs were explained away by something I learned about the book, mm. which is a fact that I'm sure that Toby researched. I hope he did. Mm -hmm. And it is going to be the crux of his research and you're mm -hmm. going to ruin it. Please continue. Okay. I might. Um, <laughs> the end of the book, there's acknowledgements. And in the acknowledgements, she thanks Ryan Johnson and says, thank you like for doing the thing. And I was like, why are you thanking Ryan Johnson? I don't understand. I I also thought only Angela Bassett did the thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> but then come to find out, this book started as fan fiction for Kylo Ren and Rey from Star Wars. What? <laughs> what? And this what? Adam is Adam Driver. Oh, no. She didn't even change Adam? And, yes. And this is, yes. this is Daisy. What's her name? So Bailey, Bailey is showing us the cover of The Love Hypothesis in oh. which there's Adam Driver the, and yeah, Daisy Ridley. In which two ca cartoon characters that are clearly Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley are kissing. Yeah. But, wow. but I didn't realize that. And even like I should have on page 69. Takes out his lightsaber and goes, whom, whom, whom. It's a description of Adam. Adam Carlson with his long nose and wavy hair, with his full lips and angular face that shouldn't have fit together, but somehow did, was really, really handsome. Uh -oh. <laughs> That's Adam Driver. Yeah. So if it, if it is a Rilo fanfic, that makes sense because they have this age difference. Mm. And there's all this talk about Kylo Ren taking off his shirt and being like surprisingly muscular or something. Mm -hmm. Well, surprisingly high pants. Yeah, the high, <laughs> did, was that part in the book? It did not mention <laughs> the high pants. He took off his lab coat and his pants are up to his nipples. <laughs> <laughs> so that explains these these things I had some issues with. But at the same time, it makes me a little disappointed because I was not picturing Adam Driver. I was picturing somebody who I find you know more handsome than Adam Driver. Whoa. Sorry, Dylan. Oh. Sorry, oh. Adam it's Driver. Dylan. Dylan. No. <laughs> it's Dan oh. Patel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Maybe. Oh, did you kiss me right now? That's pretty good. Yeah, That's pretty, pretty good. good. Um, Every day I wake up and I hope you're Olive. <laughs> silence. The movie Silence. I was in that too. I was in Silence. Have you guys heard that Kylo Ren has an eight pack? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> all this to say, though, like, I cannot deny that I stayed up all night reading it. Mm. Is it great literature? No. Is it predictable? Yes. Is it a little bit dumb? Yes. And five stars. Yeah. The same amount of stars <laughs> as um, Very true. Yeah, but you know what? It sounds like it it knew exactly what it was and it, it did what it wanted to do. Like, you know, you exactly. judge things on whether they achieved what they were supposed to do. And it sounds like this thing did it. It did for me. I was talking to your mom, Dylan. She tried to read it and she gave up on it. She said she didn't like that Olive kept making stupid decisions, like not saying what she really felt. And oh, I'm like, but that's what romance. That's the, that's that's the, the whole trope. thing. Yeah. You, just, you just have to buy in Yeah. Um, and trust that the train's going to end mm-hmm. up at the station. So. I know what I have to do. But I'm not sure if I'm strong enough. <laughs> so, yeah, all this to say is five stars. Toby, do you have any facts on Miss Allie Hazelwood? Or if you just want to do facts about Daisy Ridley, we can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, once, once you see, once you know, you can't unsee it on the cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just looked up the cover. It's yeah. pretty clear. <laughs> but, yeah. You cannot see it. So, I have some facts, yes. Did I? No, yeah. no, no. Okay. I mean, that's by far, guys, I'll spoil it for you. That's the most interesting fact. If Bailey hadn't known that, that would have been great. It would have blown her freaking mind, but she knew it. Allie Hazelwood is the pen name of an Italian romance novelist and neuroscience professor. <gasps> Rihanna Johnson? <laughs> I'm sorry, Toby. That's a pretty big, this, this is an actual professor. Yeah, yeah. That's her job. That's her main job. I do not have her real name here. I think that she wants to keep it somewhat quiet because her full-time day job is as a professor. Many of her works center on women in STEM. Um, Her debut novel, The Love Hypothesis, was a New York Times bestseller. She was born and raised in Italy and lived in Japan and Germany before moving to the United States to pursue her PhD in neuroscience. During her graduate study, Hazelwood researched brain simulation and cognitive neuroscience, which I believe, are they part of this book? Or are they? No. I, th- I think they are part of her later books. She currently works full time as a professor. This is her side hustle. Pretty cool side, side hustle. hustle. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it also says here she's married and has three cats. So props. Their names are Adam Driver and Adam Driver. Um, I'm just going to go over what we already know because it's just fun to hear. The love hypothesis was developed from a 2018 Star Wars fan fiction about the Raylo ship between Ray and Kylo Ren, originally titled Head Over Feet, and but- published by Hazelwood on AO3 under the pen name Ever So Raylo. The main characters were renamed Olive and Adam, the latter after Adam Driver, with all explicit Star Wars references cut, and the characters on the novel cover illustration designed after Driver and Daisy Ridley. Wow, just like Cry the Beloved Country. (laughs) It's so similar. Uh, The rest of this is from an interview with Goodreads. Heard of it? Yeah, I've heard of it. Thanks. Goodreads asks, what's the most challenging part of writing a novel versus fan fiction? And what's the most rewarding? And Allie Hazelwood answers, starting with rewarding, I think there are fewer constraints. When you're writing fan fiction, you're trying to write about certain characters. So you're following the personality of those characters. When you're writing stuff that is original, you can really go wherever. So that's kind of cool. But there are definitely pros and cons to that too. I'm a very obsessive person. So writing within the constraints of fan fiction and the constraints of characters that have already been created is kind of reassuring just because I'm such a scaredy cat. I second guess myself a lot, and I think that's what makes it so hard for me to write original stuff. I'm like, should I change this? I literally could go whatever direction because it's my book. It's not anyone else's. So I could change this, but would it be better if I did this other thing? So I think for me, part of what's hardest is just committing and deciding that I can be true to myself and to what I want. Wait, was the fan fiction a book? I think it was a finished like novel. Probably in the same way like Fifty Shades of Grey mm-hmm. was based on Twilight. Wow. Bailey, did you ever mess with fan fiction? I've never not, gotten no. in there. I probably should check it out. Why not? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. This is a dark hole that you will not be able to come out I of. I guess I've never like, quote, what do they call it? Shipped a couple? Mm. Like I've never been like, I really want to know what happens between X and Y. I've heard there's a lot of Draco Hermione yeah. content. And that one makes sense to me. Yeah. I think that'd be fun to read. Do you remember when we read Jillian's Draco and Ginny? Is that who it was? Or was it Draco and Hermione? Yes. It's called The Library. That's right. It was really good. Goodreads asks, you're a professor and have background in neuroscience, similar to the main character, B, in Love on the Brain. This is her second book, and this interview is about her second book. So, eat it. (laughs) 
is there much overlap between what she does and what you teach and studied? And Allie answers, I don't do her type of research now. She does brain stimulation. And that's something that I did during my master's program. I actually worked in a lab that did brain stimulation and always thought it was really cool. So I definitely wanted to write about it. My doctorate and my thesis are different from what she does, but we are in the same overarching area of neuroscience, which is cognitive neuroscience. We're both interested in how the brain and behavior map onto each other. So that was really fun, taking my favorite things about the brain and about neuroscience and merging them in this book. Her love of neuroscience is similar to my love of neuroscience. So this sounds like a really cutting edge field of study. So that means there can't be that many scientists that do it. So we just have to find an Italian-born scientist (laughs) that has three cats. Live Hypothesis takes place mostly at Stanford and Harvard. And her picture is out there, so you could just walk around campuses. Do you (laughs) know this woman? Is this your professor? Um, And then the end of her answer is, I'm going to be real. I was also like, oh, if I make my main character a neuroscientist, I wouldn't have to do a whole lot of research. Yeah. So there was a bit of laziness there. Put that to use. And the final question we have here is Goodreads asks, I know that the love hypothesis kind of blew up on TikTok. What was your reaction to that? And Allie Hazelwood says, that was amazing. I wasn't very familiar with TikTok at all. I remember my good friend Jen telling me that a video about my book had like a million views. And I was like, what is going on? I couldn't even comprehend it. Book talkers are just so creative. The way they talk about books is so engaging and fun. I think she's talking about us too. And I like the two read this podcast. Yeah. She said in a robot voice. (laughs) I actually really like TikTok, I have to say. I get really into it when people bake cakes. I really also like anything that's crafty. Literally can spend five hours just watching people do stuff. I love it so much, it's really a problem. And that would definitely summarize my experience with TikTok, too. Pretty so much we just everyone's. need to find a scientist that watches bakery videos on TikTok. Okay, mm-hmm. we Three cats. Engineer. We reverse engineer this. Well, thank you for those facts, Toby. It also leads me to reveal that the other book I bought was (laughs) Allie Hazelwood's most recent book, Love Theoretically, which I believe is um, a theoretical physicist. Mm -hmm. But I just really like this one and I wanted another (laughs) one. So (laughs) I didn't want to spoil that I liked it. So I didn't want to tell you before. Sweet. Anyway, The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars central today. Pulling out of the station. Honk, honk. Beep, beep. Beep, beep. Andrew, do you have a five-star game for us? I think I do. I'm really excited about this one. (laughs) Nice. And I'm really glad, I'm really glad, Bailey, that you brought up that you don't ship people because the name of the game this (laughs) week is called The Love Hypothership. Oh, I think I can guess. (laughs) Okay, the way it's going to work, there are going to be three rounds. In each round, I'm going to give you six choices of characters from literature, either ones we've covered or people who are sort of well-known in the literature zeitgeist. You need to, of those six people in each round, pick your best ship and explain why. Why, preferably stated like a hypothesis if you want to but i just want your reasoning for um for why these people would make a good couple does that make sense yes yes at the end of each round i will reward a winner overall it's not a point-based thing there's just going to be a winner in each round and we have three so there's got to be a winner here mm. dylan you are not officially playing in this one but if you want to pick who you think of the options would be the best Ooh. choice let me know all right are we ready for round one of the love hypothesis? Yeah. All right. Your choices. You have to make a pair from these people. And for the sake of this game, all combinations of gender, sexual orientation are valid. Love finds a way, despite how they may be presented in their in their actual medium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Round one. Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. Oh. <laughs> Hazel Motes from Wise Blood. <laughs> that one's for Toby if he wants it. Just if he wants it. Just if he wants it, it's there. <laughs> Gilderoy Lockhart from Harry Potter. Oh, wow. Katniss Everdeen from the Hunger Games franchise. And Daisy Jones from Daisy Jones and the Six. You have Mr. Darcy, Amy Dunn, Hazel Motes, Gilderoy Lockhart, Katniss Everdeen, and Daisy Jones. I I think I'm ready. Here you go. All right, Toby, take it away. Yes, I hate Hazel Motes <laughs> so bad. I really <laughs> didn't enjoy spending time with him. Um, and I would love to see him get chewed up and spat out by Amy Dunn. Um, <laughs> I think she could just continue chewing him up and spitting him out for their whole relationship. And then probably he would die or go to jail. So that would be, a, I think, a, a great relationship for me personally to witness. So okay. that's my vote. So the choice is, is based on your desire for another character's pain. Valid in this situation. Mm-hmm, Valid mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. game. She would leave a note behind saying how he was a preacher. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's my hypothesis. If 
You combine okay. a grumpy person like Mr. Darcy with a sunny person like Gilderoy Lockhart. Ooh. Then you could have a lot of fun opposites attract situations and everybody would love it. You don't have to change the title from Pride and Prejudice. It's so much better than mine. Thank you. <laughs> I think I think I can declare the winner on this one. I think you know you lost this round. Yeah, yeah that was really good. But now we have a, a great example of how you win this round because I would read the heck out of that fan yeah. fiction. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. All right, awesome. Round two. This one, we're getting a little more sort of fantasy with these characters. That's sort of the side theme. Mm-hmm. If you want to know, the first thing was like big characters that everyone will know, except for mm-hmm. Hazel Mozart. So I just wanted to see what you would do. This one's <laughs> fantasy. You'll see what the third one is. Okay. Right. Circe from Circe. Van Helsing from Dracula. <laughs> the man with the thistle down hair from Jonathan oh. Strange and Mr. Norrell. <laughs> Oh, wow. Galadriel from the Lord of the Rings franchise. <laughs> the second Mrs. De Winter from Rebecca, just to throw that in there. And, and Daisy Buchanan from The Great Gatsby. Oh, so we wow. have Cersei from Cersei, Van Helsing from Dracula, The Man with the Thistletown Hair from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, Galadriel from Lord of the Rings, the second Mrs. De Winter from Rebecca, and Daisy Buchanan from The Great Gatsby. Oh. Okay, I've got it. It's going to be Galadriel and the man with the thistle-down hair. <laughs> Ooh, powerful already. They're both elves already, mm-hmm. right? So they're, you know, they're going to be down with being with each other. And in the original cut of the movies, not the extended cut, as I remember, her husband just kind of hangs out. <laughs> it doesn't do much. <laughs> She's like dominating and giving speeches and giving out gifts. And he's like, hmm, yes, yes. So the man with the thistle-down hair, all he wants to do is give balls and have people dance. So I think he's like ready to be be a trophy husband that's like maybe he'll stop abducting people spoilers and uh and you know just be like ready to hang on galadriel's arm and be eye candy so that's my matchup all right if van helsing were to meet the second mrs de winter at a party sparks would (laughs) sparks would fly because van helsing has a savior complex and mrs de winter is really in over her head Mm, so it'd be a great great book Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm It's true. It's true. I do think I'm going to go with Toby on this one. Yes. That's fair. Your book would be good, but I just like the idea of getting the man with the thistle down hair into into Lord of the Rings world. And I feel like (laughs) they would actually be sort of a match for each other. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, but this is good because it means that we're one-to-one going into the final round. And this round is called Wild Card. Uh Uh Uh-oh. It's Charlie Day. (laughs) Basically. All of these characters, except for one. Well, no, all of these characters could be played by Charlie Day. And I didn't realize that that was a (laughs) unifying theme until just now. But here we go. Clooney the Scourge. Yes. (laughs) And Toby. (laughs) (laughs) Clooney the Scourge from Redwall. Bartimaeus from Amulet of Samarkand. Mm. Okay. Uh, the city of New York from This Is New York by E.B. <laughs> <laughs> Ignatius J. Riley from A Confederacy oh. of Dunces. Uh-huh. Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. Uh-huh. And The Old Man from The Old Man in the Sea. Wow. So again, for those listening at home, that is Clooney the Scourge from Redwall, Bartimaeus from the Amulet of Samarkand, the city of New York from This is New York by E.B. White, Ignatius J. Riley from the Confederacy of Dunces, Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, and the old man from The Old Man in the Sea. Well, I hate to do this to Tony. I know it. Dang it. If you combine a rabid rat. No. (laughs) With a very Nolans man with a silly hat. That was going to be my combination. Oh, I can feel Toby deflating. <laughs> then you will get the most crazy couple with the most erotic love scenes. <laughs> so my vote is for Clooney the Scourge and Ignatius David of J. Riley. On right. hand, my rodent. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm going to do Bartimaeus. And the city of New York. It's going to be one of those movies. It's like a romance of the self. Mm. It's like Eat, Pray, Love. He's going to go there and like fall in love with himself again. He's going to, you know, he's been working, saving that kid for many books. And he just goes there and he wanders into a bodega and he pets a cat. And then he goes out and like drinks red wine in the park and reads a book and falls asleep in the sun. It's that kind of romance. You know, at the end of Eat, Pray, Love, she falls in love. Well, that's when he falls in love (laughs) with Ignatius J. Riley. (laughs) Yes. Surprise, he's in everyone's books. (laughs) I made my way up to New York. 
me and my husband Clooney the Scourge decided to go to New York City for our honeymoon. Me and my common husband. <laughs> and who's that demon on the sand? Oh wow. <laughs> oh, it's so hard to choose a winner here because I like the story that we've written together here. <laughs> but I unfortunately, Toby, you know what's happening. It's going to Bailey because she <sighs> yeah. took the best options. Yeah. It was not fair. She is our victor. Congratulations, yeah. Bailey. Many happy shippings to you going forward. Thank you. I love it. Well done, Bailey. Well, so now, you know, it sparked something in me. I've got to go type up go some shipping. fan fiction. <laughs> well, I hope this doesn't awaken something in me. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sorry, can't do it. I'll be shipping. <laughs> That was a great game. Thank you, Andrew. Now it's time for our Clooney, the Scourge, to be let out of (laughs) his cage. It's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. choosening. Well, Andrew. Hi. (laughs) The thing is, you've been a little bit too comfortable with our choosings lately. Oh, gosh. You've been... You seem to forget that the choosings are not a treat. They are not a reward. They are, in fact, a punishment. A number 15, crime <laughs> and punishment <laughs> by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Oh, but okay. Okay. Yeah, well, this is coming. Um, it is not the worst book. I'm sure it's a great book, to be clear. It is not the most <laughs> difficult book on my shelf, but it's close. Um, yeah. So yeah. better get two stepping down reading lane. <laughs> Hey, don't do the crime unless he can't commit the time. Raskolnikov. All right, I'm going to start reading now. Well, he's dealing with his punishment. We can have some fun and games. We'll have number 68, The Westing Game by (gasps) Ellen Raskin for Bailey. So, yes, and to give a little more context, uh, next episode on the podcast, we will have a guest, Ella Gale, um, and she picked out this book for us to read. And Ella is going to talk about her new podcast she made with Dylan. Yep, that's right. I can make two podcasts. Yeah, he just speaks the whole time in his threatening choosing voice. <laughs> it's a real experience. It's a narrative podcast called Candy Claws Private Eye. We'll talk about it more when we do the episode, but she's also going to read it as well. But it's a film noir comedy set in the world of Santa Claus. I hear cool stuff about the music. Oh, and Jillian Beth Durkee did the music. That's right. She can do music for two podcasts. <laughs> and Ella chose this one, I believe, because the Westing game, my understanding is it involves some kind of mystery. Like, I think somebody Ooh. dies and you have to, like, solve a mystery to get money or something. I don't know. I know this is a children's classic and I've had it on my shelf for a while, so I'm excited to read it. Yeah, I'm going to read it too. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, we will have our guest Ella Gale. I will be reading The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. And Toby is reading The Left-Handed Booksellers of London by Garth Nix. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you want to take a break from kissing your professor to try to prove that you're not a stupid bet or something, I don't really know the plot still. Um, you can take a break and rate this podcast five stars and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It helps raise the profile and helps more people find our work. Yes. And if all your friends and family are lost in Johannesburg, go there, find them and tell them about our podcast. Because uh, word of mouth is always the best way to spread word about the podcast. People really trust you when you tell them, hey, we're in Johannesburg and there's a great podcast i know so please do that tell your friends how many podcasts do you know that can cover these two books in one episode it's true just this one <laughs> <laughs> thanks to toby and andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me to dylan for sound recording and to miss jillian beth turkey for composing our intro song see you in two weeks happy reading books books books, books. books.